Blog Talk Radio. All right. Um, and with Fantasy, you know, this is not a live show. It's uh, in private mode, so it's just an interview. Um, okay. Great. So let's start with just a crystal ball on um, the remainder of 2019 and what you see going forward for 2020 in equities. Uh, well, the first thing I'll say is my crystal ball has always been quite cloudy, <laughs> and it's it's probably <laughs> even cloudier these days because I think some of the factors that are most relevant to short and medium-term market behavior, but of course also the economy, relate to the trade war and, and tariffs. And, and we know the uncertainty associated with that, given uh, that you know, in, in a matter of a tweet, you can see a, a shift both in sentiment about the economy as well as what the market is doing. So I think it's just a trickier landscape. We, we, we continue to think we're, we're getting late in the cycle. Uh, their manufacturing side of the economy is quite weak, arguably on the verge of recession. Mm-hmm. The global manufacturing economy arguably is in recession, but so far it has not um, transferred over to the services or consumer side of the economy to a significant degree. So that's what's most important to watch as we head into the latter part of the year. Yeah, and I mean, consumer debt is back to an all-time high. So do you think that that might, um, you know, ha- that has to have some sort of cap there? We are see- starting to see, you know, some defaults on the college debt uh, rising. It's still low, but rising on credit card. Um, any any indicators on that side? I mean, debt has gone astronomical again, let's face it. It, it has, except that um, it, it's, it's disingenuous to look at the growth in consumer debt with also, also looking at the growth in income. Um, so income growth has been relatively healthy as well. So debt as a percentage of disposable personal income, which is the common way we mm-hmm. measure household debt, is actually below the long-term trend line. So we've had the benefit of, of better income growth. And in fact, when we got the second quarter GDP report on July 26th, um, the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which puts out the GDP report, did their what they call their annual benchmark revisions, and they do it not mm-hmm. just for prior GDP reports, but they do it for corporate earnings. And they found out that mm-hmm. they discovered that corporate profits had been overstated. And the reason why they were overstated is income growth, unit labor costs, were actually have been higher in the past five years. So that was negative for corporate profits, but a positive story relative to initial estimates for households. Yeah, and um, I mean, we have to factor in there also the um, the rise of uh, home values, right? I mean, that's factored into into that mix. And what the statistics that I'm seeing is that 74% of Americans can no longer afford to buy a home in the cities that they work in. So are, are we seeing, you know, I mean, I understand that we got to look at this from a broad perspective. Also in one of your more recent tweets, um, the CEO, CEO wage growth versus worker wages um, is pretty outsized as well. So, um, are you, I mean, how are you factoring it? This is a lot of data. I guess that's why the crystal ball gets a little muddy, right? Yes. So, you know, on the housing piece, I think one of the mistakes that, that um, investors or, or just people looking at the data, your average kind of consumer, makes with regard to real estate is, is assuming that we can continue to look at real estate, what I would call monolithically 
where real estate is sort of the singular thing in the United States and the, and the trends and the affordability factors are all the same. Now, you could analyze housing somewhat monolithically during the inflation of the housing bubble because pretty much across the country, every, every area was in a bubble. And then in turn, during the, the housing bust, the bursting of the bubble, you could also analyze yeah. housing somewhat monolithically. You cannot do that anymore. There are vast, vast differences across the country uh, from from region to region in terms of affordability, whether the income growth in the local area is sufficient for homes, what the supply-demand relationship is, what the inventory setup is. So you have to be much more local now and don't make sort of sweeping generalizations about housing. We're back to what is a more normal environment where it's going to be a function of the local economics, where the industry is, and um, some of those other factors. I, I think there are certain parts of the country you know, the, the, the Bay Area, New York City to some degree, um, where, yes, um, part of the reason why you're seeing businesses move out of some of these higher-cost areas is they can't attract young workers because young workers don't have the yeah. ability to afford to live in those places. But there are areas where, that are attracting businesses, some in the south, uh, southeast. It's because housing affordability is still quite reasonable, and that's why industry is moving there because they can attract young talent. Yeah. So I, what I'm hearing you say is that we, we can't definitively say that. It, I mean, we can say it looks like the late stage of the cycle, but I'm not hearing you use the R word yet. No, we're not yet thinking that 2020 is a guaranteed recession. Well, nothing's guaranteed. Um, uh, well, we're guaranteed to get another recession. Uh, that's because every cycle ends with a recession. <laughs> it's the, the timing of it. The only thing I would say yeah. is this. Right now, the weakness is concentrated in manufacturing, and I think we're on the cusp of a manufacturing recession. Um, and we had that a couple mm -hmm. of years ago, which didn't bring the overall economy down with it. So you can have manufacturing-only recessions. The problem is, is if manufacturing continues to deteriorate from here, it starts to morph into the consumer side of the economy because it's a leading indicator. So manufacturers, once the weakness starts to really persist, then it starts to impact employment and hiring, and that's where it starts to move into the services or consumer side of the economy. The problem is if we don't see a lift from here, either driven by lower interest rates by the Fed or some sort of trade deal, right. and manufacturing continues to worsen and it starts to filter into the consumer side, then risk of recession goes up. And here's the rub. If we don't see a pickup in the interim, and we move into recessionary conditions, which we don't have right now, it's possible the bureau that dates recessions, the NBER, they, what they right. do when they decide you're in a recession is they go back to closer to the peak and say, okay, here's when the right. recession started. Therefore, it is possible, it's not, my, it's not a forecast, but it's possible we could already be in one. By virtue of the fact that if it right. continues to deteriorate, we don't get a lift, the MBER, when they say, okay, you know, two quarters from now, three quarters from now, whatever it is, okay, we're, this is a recession, right. and they go back to date it, the peak might be prior to this time that you and I are on the phone here. <laughs> right, right. So, again, right. That's current a very conditions good point. do not suggest that, but we have, to be, we have to understand how the manufacturing weakness historically can morph into broader economic weakness. It's why manufacturing indicators are leading economic indicators. They tend to weaken first before the consumer side of the economy. 
And, you know, the latest um, GDP numbers that I saw, uh, granted, uh, there may be some revisions that have come in that I haven't seen, but but we're from June, that this year is projected to grow 2.1 compared to last year at 2.8. How does that affect everything? I mean, particularly, I'm recalling that the tax cut, which, of course, who doesn't, you know, who hates a tax cut, but you know, part of the sale on that was that the economy was going to be um, moving forward at 3% or higher. And so, in other words, the tax cut was going to be paid for. Uh, what happens in this environment where our GDP did not meet that? Well, what happened was that tax cuts were put in place, particularly on the corporate side, to stimulate investment spending, to stimulate capital spending. And there was, mm-hmm. there was great hope that that would happen, capital spending intention plans. So surveys that, that had the CEOs and CFOs say, yes, we're going to increase our capital spending, they really provided yeah. a lot of, of hope that we were going to see that kind of next leg in the economy where you see business spending take over from uh, consumer spending. But then a few months after the tax cuts were passed, the trade war was launched. And that caused business confidence to come to a screeching halt. So you you saw this inflation of animal spirits, corporate animal spirits, by virtue of not just tax cuts, but also regulatory reform. And then in short order, you saw an offsetting force. And I think that offsetting force is the reason why we've seen the economy slow, because businesses in this kind of environment of uncertainty, especially where a tweet can change the landscape, are basically saying, you know what, we're just going to kind of keep our powder dry here until we have greater certainty as to the investing landscape. So that's what happened. Is the the trade war in tariffs. I think we have to talk a little bit about that because, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, you know, we are paying for these tariffs. So, you know, you get a tweet or you get a soundbite from the White House, and they're saying, oh, we're making so much money. Well, uh, the money's flowing into the government, yes, but it's really flowing out of the business sector. Am I right on that, or what are your, what's your take on it? Absolutely. So tariffs on Chinese goods are basically taxes that U.S. companies that are importing goods from China have to pay. So the U.S. company, that's the importer, remits that tariff Yes, it ultimately goes to the U.S. government, but it's coming out of the pockets of U.S. corporations. And then as they persist or increase, companies basically have two decisions Um, with regard to the tariffs. Yes, they can start to maybe adjust their supply chain and move manufacturing, say, from China to Vietnam or Indonesia, but that, that can't be done on a dime. That's a longer process. In the short term, companies basically have two decisions to make. One, do we eat this higher cost in our profit margins or do we pass on some or all of those higher costs to consumers or some combination of both? Now, this next round of tariffs, which were supposed to kick in on September 1st, some of it was delayed until December 15th, are much more heavily weighted toward consumer goods. And that's why you've seen many of the consumer companies come out and say, even in the case of Walmart, which just had great earnings, said, you know what? If those tariffs kick in, we are going to pass at least some of those higher costs on to consumers. Um, so really what's happening now is we're on the cusp potentially of this becoming a little more resonant for consumers. 
um, there's going to be sort of more meat on the bones in terms of what impact this has. I think in the beginning of the trade war, it was a bit more esoteric and there wasn't as much understanding about how tariffs work. Now I think it's starting to hit home. You saw, you know, Deer Tractor last week report negative earnings, very much tied to uh, to trade. More and more companies on earnings conference calls are starting to quantify the impact that this has had and likely will have. So the, the landscape has definitely changed. Um, but but we pay the tariffs. Yeah, that's it, and it's. Um it's um, something, I mean, I think that that's what a lot of um, consumers, as you said, it's, once it hits them in the wallet, they're going to realize it. But I think it's also important for us to realize it now. It's exactly the opposite of small government. Tariffs are a tax, essentially. And so it's hard not to make comments about this that, that sound political in nature. And, you know, Schwab, right. our, our goal is always to be totally objective in analyzing the information and the data, the impact on the economy, the impact on the market without editorializing. So to the people who say, but down the road, we'll end up being victorious. And I, I'll say, fine, that, that may be the case. It may be the case that however many years from now, we look back and say, okay, that tactic was the right one to get China to back down from its more kind of nefarious practices of intellectual property theft. But in the meantime, though, what we have to do is actually analyze the impact it's having now. Um, it's disingenuous right. to say down the road this will prove to be a winning strategy by ignoring the impact it has in the short term. And it's the reason why from day one we have said trade wars are not actually easy to win, and basically everybody involved um, gets hurt. It is not a, a kind of a black and white, one winner, one loser kind of situation. And yeah. what we're seeing is the impact on psyche, the impact on animal spirits. And that's, that's actually happening. That's not just perspective. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I think that it's a really good idea when we're discussing data to try to keep the politics out of it because it is, um, you know, someone's got to be the one giving the real data out there. And I, right. um, I yep. did want to insert one thing that you're talking about here with regard to the data. I mean, there's a lot of economic data that supports that tariffs are not good for economies, that, you know, look, you don't want, um, you know, England being the winemakers of the world at this point at least, and maybe global warming will change that. Like, you, you know, there are certain areas of the world that can excel in certain things and become the, right. you know, the best at it. And if you, if you're, whether it's your climate or your um, labor force, whatever it is that keeps you from being the best at it, it's better for you to just do what you do best, right? Yeah, and I think that that maybe is one of the things getting missed in, in longer-term analysis of this. Now, there's nothing perfect about the way our world works. Um, there are there are flaws and and hopefully things that we can try to adjust. But what's happened over the last several decades is that we have seen this shift around the globe to, in the case of the United States, moving away from more traditional manufacturing toward more on the um, kind of intellectual side, on the um, artificial mm -hmm. intelligence and robotics and um, kind of, you know, new age manufacturing. And we've become more of a services oriented economy and we've yes outsourced some of the traditional manufacturing to other places where it can be done uh you know more cheaply now 
the the one force I think that that has has brought to the globe that we need to be mindful of, it's one of the reasons why inflation has stayed so low uh, globally. Again, not mm-hmm. a perfect system, um, but globalization and the competition that's come from globalization has kept inflation very much in check around the globe. I think one of the longer-term things to think about if we continue down this path toward protectionism and nationalism, which, by the way, is not just the United States. It's most of the world. is kind of deglobalizing. Yeah. And um, that potentially has some implications for, for things like inflation. And it's another thing that I don't think gets discussed enough because we're in this short-term mode of, you know, are we going to get a deal? What's the next tweet? What's the next uh, comment we're going to get from, from China? Without thinking, okay, if we are truly on this path toward globalization globally, what are the longer-term uh, implications of that? Yeah, and I think we've, we've had, you know, our concerns have been deflation for so long that the idea that inflation could even be a, uh, something that we have to worry about, I think, has become so far back in our head. Is it something that, Absolutely. that um, you're factoring in? Well, I, I'm never a contrarian just to be a contrarian. I think that that's a silly thing to do. But I have said yeah. many times over my 33 years in the business that I'm always at least as intrigued by the story no one's telling than I am by the story everyone is telling. And I think the story everyone is telling right now is that inflation is dead and buried forever. And I can't help – the contrarian in me can't help not to say, okay, therefore I'm going to take the other side of that argument. Again, that's silly. But to play devil's yeah. advocate in my own head and think, okay, if this, this very pat consensus turns out to not be true, what could be the factors that cause a surprise away from that consensus? And I think deglobalization, protectionism could be one of those forces. We don't see it now. I don't think we see it in the near term. But it's just one of those things that I kind of keep in the back of my uh, mind um, and make sure that that's something we're keeping a close eye on from a from a contrarian perspective. I mean, yeah, because you're right. Even uh, the globalization or the appetite for our treasury bills worldwide has kept our own interest rates really low. Um, you're, Absolutely. you know, in, uh, Alan, Green, Alan Greenspan was saying within the last year hey, when we have to monetize this debt um, in terms of inflation, people are going to, it's going to hurt. Well, for now, we've oh. had no problem attracting uh, investors to our treasuries because we're in an environment where $16 trillion of global debt has negative yields. So even though our <laughs> yields all the way out to 30 years are, are low. quite low, um, <laughs> nobody's cheering them because it represents great income from there to retire on. But relative to negative right. yields in much of the rest of the world, it's a pretty good bargain. So as investors continue to want to buy treasuries for their safe haven status for the high relative yield, that pushes treasury prices up, which in turn pushes treasury yields down. At some point, that's not going to continue. Um, I hope we're not in an environment where we're going to see negative rates here in the United States. What I think has been proven with the $16 trillion of negative yielding debt is that taking rates to negative did not solve the economic problems uh, in those regions that, uh, that yeah. we saw that. Um, there was this idea that it would help pull these economies out of deflation if you disincentivized yeah. hoarding money. But the exact opposite happened. It actually cemented the whole deflationary mindset and didn't solve their economic woes. So this idea that 
ever lower interest rates is the elixir for what ails us, uh, it's just not the case. And, and I, I certainly hope that we don't feel that we need to go down that same path because it's been basically a failed experiment globally so far anyway. Well, we do then have that leads perfectly into interest rate cuts and expectations and all that. I just want to set the stage, and I know you're going to have plenty to comment. You know, when we were – interest rates cut really helped the bond market in the last two recessions. We're starting so low this time. So, um, you know, I've seen some of your commentary on this that, is, first of all, is their policy impotent because of, of where we're starting and secondly, what about the bond market? I mean, what about the safe side not being able to be um, helping your, port, your portfolio uh, remain as buoyant um, as it's been so helpful in the last two recessions? Well, keep in mind, though, on the, on the fixed income side of things, especially investing in treasuries, and, and this won't persist forever, but as yields have moved down, if you're just looking at the coupon and you look at a you know 1.6% on the 10-year and think, I can't live on that. But the total return in treasuries has been quite healthy. It's been better than the total return on stocks because we've been in this declining yield environment, which means bond prices are going up. So as an investor mm-hmm. in bonds, you're not only earning the coupon, but you've got the price appreciation or depreciation. So in this declining yield environment, it's actually meant that treasuries have been a great diversifier relative to uh, stocks. But there is going to come a time where we may be moving in the opposite direction, and that's an environment where even though the coupon will be going up, prices might be going down, and then investors, I think, are going to be in a position to want to try to pick up income and pick up total return elsewhere. We continue to think you want to stay pretty defensive by using treasuries as a diversifier, but within the equity market, be be defensive. This is not the time to so-called, you know, get out over your skis and take a lot of uh, risk. So that's what we have been telling uh, investors. As far as the first part of your question with regard to, um, you know, does the Fed have ample ammunition to combat weak economic environment? We don't know. Um, We happen to think that the next recession, whenever it comes, is not going to be an epic 07 to 09. We don't have a massive systemic bubble out there that when it pops is going to take the entire global financial system down with it. So you could just get some semblance of a garden variety recession. It's still painful, but it's, you know, we have this muscle memory that now recessions all look like 07 to 09, and we don't think that's the case. But the Fed not only has the Fed funds rate that they can control and and use to stimulate, but of course the Mm -hmm. balance sheet. So um, current and former PEV members have said, yes, we will use that. You know, they they could launch quantitative easing again. They've already basically halted quantitative tightening. So Mm -hmm. absolutely expect that the balance sheet will be a lever that they will pull in addition to just the traditional movement of the Fed funds rate. All right. So let's take a look at corporate buybacks versus cash balances, because corporate buybacks have been really helpful in keeping this market buoyant. Um, how, but the cash balances were great in the past. Has that shifted, or what do you see uh, in terms of corporate buybacks in 2019? So, uh, you know, I, I don't have any greater ability to forecast what companies are going to, to do in the, the <laughs> next year. We know that the force of, of stock buybacks has been an extremely positive support under the market. In fact, quite frankly, if you look at this entire bull market uh, and you break 
the investors into cohorts. So you look at, say, pension funds and hedge funds mm-hmm. and traditional sort of foundations and endowments kind of covering the institutional spectrum. And then you look at individual investors as kind of the retail cohort. Um, there's really been no strong net buying of U.S. equities among any of those cohorts. Hedge funds, net long exposure stayed relatively low in this uh, cycle. Pensions have been a bit more focused on the fixed income side. Foundations and endowments actually have shifted their investments more to the private side, you know, private equity and venture capital and private real estate and individual investors, but also institutions that, that buy and sell mutual funds and ETFs, even if you include exchange-traded mm-hmm. funds, um, uh, mm-hmm. which have been much more popular than traditional mutual funds. If you combine the two and look at flows in and out of those specific to U.S. equities, not fixed income, not international, there's been no net new money on a cumulative basis added to the U.S. stock market since 2007. So you then say, okay, well, it's not been hedge funds, it's not been pension funds or foundations or endowments or individual investors. How the heck have we had a 10-year bull market? Well, (laughs) corporations have bought that stock, and until recently we didn't have a lot of IPOs. So any market – the stock market, right. the farmer's market, the supermarket, prices are a function of supply and demand. And when you have increased demand, even if it's just from corporations buying back their own stock, and less supply because corporations are buying back their stock, but also not a lot of new stock right. is coming to market, there's a recipe for a bull market. Now, recently, the, we've seen buybacks very strong in the last year because companies are flush or they're taking advantage of low interest rates and borrowing, even if they don't need to, to buy back their own stock. Because they're not willing, they don't have the confidence in this trade war environment to commit to long-term capital investments, which we talked about. So it's almost the default option then is, you know, why don't we just buy back stock? And it kind of juices earnings per share. And there we have it. So I think with ongoing uncertainty, I think capital will probably still be a bit more biased toward stock buybacks, hopefully maybe dividend increases as well, more so than to longer-term capital spending projects. But whether, you know, 2019 beats the record, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, are you worried? I have seen, like, in the financial stability report and a few other um, reports that 50% of the bonds are now, investment-grade bonds are now at the lowest rung. So, um, yes. We are starting to see some companies like Boeing, where in their uh, new loan covenants, they're not they're not supposed to be buying back their own stock. So, are you worried that perhaps the shift now more towards um, the higher leveraged firms borrowing more might uh, impact both the equity market as well as um, maybe even pose a little more risk in the investment grade um, fixed income side. Yeah, so that has been a risk that we have been pointing out. And, and if there's any area within markets that maybe you could attach the bubble label to, it would be that. It's this you know, heavy shift toward a large percentage of the so-called investment grade that are down in the triple B, the lowest rung. And what happens if things deteriorate? You, know, you move into junk status, mm-hmm. and that could cause a lot of problems. The reason why we don't liken it to the bursting of the housing bubble is that it, it's just nowhere near the the size and scope with with infiltration into the global financial system, a system that at the time was massively over leveraged. This is a bit more of Mm -hmm. a kind of a pocketed um, bubble. It doesn't mean it it, it won't potentially cause serious 
troubles, but it's it's unlikely to take the entire system down with it. And you're seeing it um, across the spectrum, even in the kind of small cap. One of the reasons why for two years now we have had an overweight to large cap and an underweight to small cap is that a record high percentage of small cap companies don't have profits. Um, they're, they're, many of them are also called so-called zombie companies where they just don't have the cash flow to pay debt, but they've been kind of, you know, feeding out of the trough of low interest rates to survive where oh in a normal interest rate environment, they would have never uh, survived. Uh, so right. you, and a lot of people thought small caps would, would do best when we got the corporate tax rate cut because they generally have a higher tax rate. The problem is that's a tax rate on profits. If you don't have profits, doesn't matter whether your tax rate went from 27 to 21. You don't have profits, so yeah. you're not benefiting uh, from that. So I, I think right. this this sort of highly indebted, weak component of the corporate sphere probably will mark the end of this cycle in some form. But we don't think it represents, again, um, something akin to what happened with housing in, in 07. Got it. Now, I know you've been a real proponent of rebalancing. Let's talk a little bit about um, why that might be um, your best move right now with yeah. regard to your retirement strategy. Well, we always think rebalancing should be part of a disciplined strategy. And the way I, I, I explain it to people is to think about the old mantra of, of buy low, sell high, which we all know as investors we're supposed to do. But unfortunately, when left to our own devices, often we do the opposite. It's, you know, the stock market is the only market where when things go on sale, we tend to run in the opposite direction and we seem to be more enthusiastic <laughs> buyers when things are expensive. You know, I know if Neiman Marcus had a 50% off sale, that might be more intriguing to me <laughs> than if they had a 50% markup. <laughs> Uh, so yeah. I, I think that um, what investors need to think about is rebalancing does two things, two very important things. It forces us to do what we know we're supposed to do, which is buy low, sell high, or add low, trim high. So assuming you've established a long-term strategic asset allocation that's right for you based on time horizon and income needs and risk tolerance and all of those factors, and you start to see bigger swings in the market and in asset classes, your portfolio is going to get out of whack more frequently. So if you have a big move higher in, say, domestic equities, and that goes from, I'm just throwing numbers out, 45% of your portfolio to 55% of your portfolio, um, your portfolio is telling you when it's time to do something. And it, it sort of puts yeah. investors always on the, to use a trader's term, on the right side of the trade. It also means that you don't have to worry about short-term market timing. You don't have to worry about, whether your own market call is going to be the right one or, or which, you know, Yahoo on the financial media shows is going to have the right short-term market call, your portfolio tells you when it's time to do something. So especially in an environment like this where we're seeing greater dispersion in terms of how asset classes are behaving and bigger swings, it affords investors more frequent opportunities to rebalance. You have to take turnover into consideration and tax considerations, of course, but that's something investors should work on with their advisor or, or try to be disciplined around that too. But that's the, the closest thing you get to a free lunch. Um, I always say neither get in nor get out our investing strategies. That's purely gambling on moments in time. And we should never think of our portfolio at a moment in time. It should never be get in, get out, all or nothing because that is a losing uh, strategy, and, and the data has proved it for decades. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, how many people do we know that, you know, they, the market bottom, they can't sleep at night, and so they sell low. And then now, here we are, you know, 10 years into this bull run, and they're tempted to buy high. You're exactly right. Your, work, exactly. your emotions work yep. against you, you know. Absolutely. So especially if you're trying to do that market timing game. Well, is, is there anything that we haven't discussed that you think is really important for uh, Main Street investors yeah, the, to the know today? Yeah, the one final thing uh, I would say, as, as somebody that keeps close tabs on, on investor sentiment, um, I, this entire bull market, really until about a year and a half ago, beginning of 2018, there was so much skepticism and, and close to pessimism. And, and it was, you know, the, the Rodney Dangerfield bull market. It just it didn't get any respect. Nobody kind of believed it. Everybody was skeptical about why it was moving up and when the next shoe was going to drop. But January 2018, it's like somebody flipped a switch. And I've seen these bursts of optimism that came then. I saw it again in September of last year and started to see it again in both April of this year and July. Sure enough, right at the point where we got a bit of a crack uh, in the market. So I think sentiment in this environment is probably starting to become a little bit more of a needle mover in the short term for the market. So whether it's anecdotal measures or actual measures, kind of watch how, how sentiment shifts because extremes and optimism um, in the last year and a half have been pretty good sort of timing points for when we run into some of the trouble that we've run into in the last year and a half. I think I saw one of your charts that showed when optimism is at a high, that's actually, um, you know, usually when the turning point towards the uh, weakness starts happening. Uh, sentiment is a, at extremes, not every day, but sentiment is a contrarian indicator. And at extremes of optimism, the market historically has done more, quite poorly, and at extremes of pessimism, quite the opposite. So we should always heed that. Again, it's not every single day. There's not some metric we look at and say, okay, investors are pessimistic today, therefore the market's going to go up. But at extremes over the long yeah. term, it's an extremely valuable indicator. Hey, Natalie, I have, to, I have to run because I have a TV appearance. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, I appreciate your time and your wisdom and have a lovely day. Thank you very much. Okay, bye.